You can grab your Bible as you're kind of sitting down and getting yourself situated there, and you can turn to the book of Romans, chapter 6. I remember um, at a young age the, uh, the process for being selected for sports teams. Um, if you ever went through this process, even in elementary school or high school, maybe this doesn't apply to you, and that's okay too. You're still welcome here. Um, but uh, the process of trying out for a sports team. And um, I remember those days going to the tryouts, but really the excitement was building and the nervousness was building as all the tryouts had finished, everybody at the end of the school day would flock to the gym door to figure out if their name was on the list of people who had made the team. It was a very disappointing day for some people, but for many, it was an exciting day. But really, the excitement was just beginning. The really exciting moment was when you were handed the team jersey. I remember being handed the jersey, and there was this moment of excitement where you put on this jersey, and in that moment, it was now visible. It was visible, and everybody could see, everybody knew that you are a part of the team. And if you had that jersey on, you were a proud member of the team who now began to participate in the, the life of the team, all of the practices and the development, the games, the celebrations, the losses, and the wins. You see, when it comes to the church, God has a way of making us visible. He gave to his people, the church, visible signs to make it clear who was on his team and how they could continue to participate in the ongoing life and health and development and mission of the team. God has a way of visibly marking his people off from the world around us, of making it abundantly clear who is in his kingdom and who is not. God has given to the church, in fact, two ways of doing this, two primary ways of doing this. They're often referred to as ordinances or sacraments. There are two and only two that are mentioned in the scriptures. And I say that only because some of you may come from backgrounds, like a Catholic background, where they practiced seven sacraments. The scriptures are clear that there are two. Two ordinances, two practices that are to define in many ways the life of the church, and they are intended, here's the key, they are intended to make us visible. The first ordinance is baptism, and the second is the Lord's Supper. Through these two ordinances, we are made a visible people so that we can make our God visible to the world around us. I want to look this morning at both of these, and I want to begin by looking uh, first at baptism. We're going to look at it from Romans chapter 6, 3 through 5, and here's the first kind of point, the thing that you need to kind of take away is this, that baptism marks our initial entrance. It marks our initial entrance. You say our initial entrance into what? Into the kingdom of God, into the family of God, into the body of Christ. It demonstrates that we have crossed a threshold a very clear line. It demonstrates that we have entered into the church. And in Romans chapter 6, we see the Apostle Paul explaining to us a little bit about baptism. There are a multitude of texts we could go to, but I want to anchor us in our understanding of baptism from Romans chapter 6. 
Paul is talking about what it means to live as a follower of Jesus Christ, and what he does is he pulls believers, the church of Jesus Christ, back into this idea of baptism and and understanding what exactly our baptism signifies, what it means. In verse 3, you can follow along with me. We'll just read to verse 5. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Here Paul is reminding believers of their initial entrance into a walk with Jesus Christ. He refers to baptism here. Some people believe this is talking primarily uh, about a spiritual baptism. This was alluded to in last week's sermon, that we are all baptized with the Spirit of God. But it probably makes better sense to understand Paul referring here to the actual physical act of water baptism. Water baptism itself is simply symbolizing the reality of a spirit baptism, the reality of what's taken place. We are given a spirit baptism upon our conversion. It identifies us, the Spirit of God does, it marks us off invisibly as the people of God. So God gives to the church a visible way of demonstrating that that's exactly who they are. Water baptism depicts this idea of spirit baptism in many ways. But one of the things we see throughout the New Testament is that baptism was the initial entrance into the family of God. Water baptism was commanded, it was expected, and what we see throughout the scriptures is it wasn't delayed. It was something that every believer in Jesus Christ was expected to do. The first command we have to be baptized is given by Jesus himself, and and really this, this comes by way of him commanding his disciples to go and baptize other people. In Matthew chapter 28, in the Great Commission, Jesus says, go and make disciples. He says, how do you do that exactly? Well, it begins here by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This was the indicator that the disciples had been sharing the good news of Jesus Christ And baptism was so tied to an understanding of the gospel, it was simply expected that the moment that somebody became a follower of Jesus Christ, baptism would happen immediately. By the way, the sense of of immediate baptism is something we see um, throughout the book of Acts. In the early church, what we see happening is that baptism, again, was so tightly linked to the conversion experience that baptism happened sometimes even on the spot. In most instances, this is what took place. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, after the Spirit of God had fallen upon the apostles, Peter gets up and he preaches this this magnificent gospel sermon. He pulls back from the Old Testament all of these links and pointing towards the gospel of Jesus Christ and how, how now the gospel is being fulfilled in front of them through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. People are cut to the heart, it says. And in Acts 2.38, the people cry out who hear this, what should we do? And the response of Peter is so clear. He says, repent and be baptized. A little further down, it says this. Listen, 3,000 people responded on this day to the gospel message. 3,000 people were added to the church that day. How do we know they were added? Because they were baptized. The visible entrance into the kingdom 
The sign itself, um, baptizing, being immersed in water, is significant. And here's why uh, we practice water baptism. First, because it's a profound gospel illustration. It is intended by God to actually be a visible picture of the gospel. It's supposed to signify the the aspect and the elements of baptism signify the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It paints a picture for us, a beautiful picture of a beautiful spiritual truth. When baptism is spoken of in the New Testament, it is commanded for those who have responded to the gospel by faith. Baptism always follows conversion in the New Testament. So why? Why is it necessary that baptism follows conversion? Why not baptism first and then conversion? Because that's to put the cart before the horse. Baptism isn't pointing forward to some future reality. It's pointing backwards to an actual reality. Baptism, as I said, is this external, visible picture of an inward, invisible reality. Again, interestingly, in the New Testament, baptism was virtually immediate. And baptism seemed to have been preached alongside the gospel as if it was just kind of expected and normative. The greatest example of this is in Acts chapter 8. You know when Philip, he appears alongside the, the, the cart of the Ethiopian eunuch? He, he just appears out of nowhere. God transports him there. And he overhears this man reading from the book of Isaiah, and he's reading specifically about the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. He's reading about Jesus Christ, though he doesn't understand it. Philip, in this moment, he explains what exactly this passage is pointing to, and it's so fascinating. We don't have the whole scope of the conversation, but isn't it interesting that right after the gospel is explained, again, we don't have all the details, the Ethiopian eunuch's response is this. He looks over, and he sees water, and he goes, hey, look, there's some water. What's preventing me from being baptized right now? Up to this point, There's no mention of baptism in the message that Philip has given the Ethiopian eunuch, but we have to understand that it was so clearly being preached by Philip. He saw it as such an important event, symbolizing the spiritual reality that the Ethiopian eunuch understood in the moment that he believed the truth about Jesus, he was required to demonstrate this visibly. In Romans 6, we see in a sense how Baptism illustrates the gospel. And we read what Paul says again. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, notice this emphasis, were baptized into his death? The first thing we see is that baptism signifies the death of Jesus. It is an illustration of what took place on the cross. And Paul then goes on to elaborate that, in one sense, death is the beginning of the Christian life. This idea of death to self, of being dead to sin. You see, it's death to self because death is what defined all of us before Jesus Christ. For the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. All of us being guilty were living a life of death, of sin, of alienation from God, of rebellion against God. The gospel reminds us 
that the Christian life begins with a sort of death. By the way, again, the mode of baptism by immersion under the water is incredibly important. The word baptism here, baptize, excuse me, here actually means that, immerse. The context indicates that it means immerse. Verse 4 actually gives this sense of what it means to be immersed. It says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Just notice this, that baptism paints first the picture of being buried. Again, this idea of immersion, of being immersed in, is a picture of death. Now, here's why this is so important, because in our culture and in our time, oftentimes baptism is something we just view as something ceremonial. And oftentimes we look at baptism as being this really soft, gentle, sweet moment. But in reality, baptism is supposed to depict something very, very different. It's supposed to depict something very violent. It's supposed to depict death. The picture of going under the water helps us understand the seriousness of sin, the weightiness of sin, the gravity of sin. It shows us the violence that is required because of death. Now, oftentimes we associate the idea of being buried with simply being buried under the ground, but that is to miss the point. It's not simply being buried under the ground like Jesus was put into a tomb, although that's true. You see, to be held under water is to depict the reality of certain death. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure this out, right? We all know that if you were to be held underwater would mean that you would drown and die. To be immersed in water is to guarantee, listen, that you will no longer experience life. The word baptized was used in secular literature for people being drowned or ships being sunk. Which, by the way, is why Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, he draws this parallel to Noah and the floodwaters as a kind of baptism, a prefiguring the baptism that we would experience. The, the idea, if you just think of Noah and the ark, the flood was full submersion. That's the idea. But, but the water, listen, the water that covered the earth, think about what that represented at the time of Noah. It represented God's full judgment upon the earth. He submerges the earth under the weight of his wrath because of humanity's rebellion against him. It is punishment for sin. And the waters of baptism are actually a picture of the raging flood of God's wrath that destroys and kills because of sin. It's a picture of how Jesus was baptized with a cup of God's wrath. Isn't it interesting that Jesus chooses this language? Listen to Mark 10, 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. This is Jesus referring to what is about to happen to him at the cross. He would be fully submerged in the wrath of God. He would experience death, not just physical, but spiritual. He would experience the full, abundant weight of the wrath of God towards all the sin of the world unleashed upon him. So you see, baptism doesn't just depict being buried underground. 
It depicts for us that we are buried by death and it pictures death to a whole way of life, as a whole way of life. You see, it is a powerful picture that Christians are people who have died and their baptism illustrates that death. Their sin has been fully punished. Their sin has been fully dealt with. What's interesting is that if you read the rest of Romans 6 all the way to verse 13, the word death is in every single verse up to verse 13. Just emphasizing the reality of what baptism signifies, what it pictures. But I want you to see this too. It doesn't just signify death and being buried. You see, just like Noah and his family survived the chaotic waters of death during the flood, so too believers in Jesus have come through the waters of baptism alive. In verse 4, the second half there, it not only emphasizes death, notice this, it emphasizes life in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It pictures here the reality that there are people who are spared from the wrath of God, who have been covered and saved like Noah and his family were placed in the ark. We too have been protected and preserved. The idea of raised indicates the idea of life, but it's more than that. You see, death and life picture both judgment and life pictures, listen, church, listen, victory. It pictures for us that death doesn't have the final say, that sin is not going to win, that Jesus Christ is the ultimate conqueror. Jesus deals the death blow to death. He removes its sting from us and he offers us in, his, in its place a new life in him. Because he was victorious, so too we are victorious and raised to a newness of life. You see, the picture of coming up out of the water is a picture that we have been saved and spared and given new life. We have a spiritual life where we have been brought from death to life. God has given us a new heart, a new birth, Baptism also paints this beautiful picture of how we have been cleansed by the purifying blood of Jesus. We have been buried, we have been raised, but we have been washed. We don't see it directly in this verse, but the scriptures make it very clear that our salvation testimony is a picture of being cleansed. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 11. After Paul describes all of these different sins and sinners, he says this, and such were some of you, but you were washed. The water clearly depicts the idea that spiritually speaking, we have been washed clean. We have been forgiven of all of our sin. We are made white as snow, that grace has been abundant to us. You see, baptism is this profound illustration of the gospel. It's a profound illustration of what Jesus has done for us. Listen, because of who we are in him. So secondly, I want you to see this. Baptism is a public gospel identification. It's a public gospel identification. In essence, this reference to baptism is a reference back to the beginning of the Christian life, to the command of Jesus and to obediently follow him. You say, why is this so essential at the beginning of the Christian life to visibly display um, our identification with the gospel? Here's why, because Jesus wants us to make our allegiance to him clear. 
This is so important in, in a day and a time where we seem to be very fearful of people finding out that we're followers of Jesus. When you consider baptism, here's what you need to consider. We are not plain clothes soldiers in God's army. We are not undercover Christians. We are not secret followers of Jesus Christ. No, there is no place for that in the kingdom of God. So why? Because we are not ashamed of the gospel, amen? Because it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believed. We don't take our salvation, we don't take the gospel and hide it under a bushel. We are called to be a city on a hill. So God says, listen, I've given you a way to make this so clear. You need to identify yourself as followers of me. Baptism. It is this visible public declaration of our new identification. We are making it clear. Listen, I was one time, listen, a citizen of a different country. Now I am a citizen of a new heavenly country. I am a different person. I have a different allegiance. I follow a different king. I have a different master. You know, so many people are fearful of being baptized. It's so interesting. I think it's, it's a really a, a significant mark of our culture. People are fearful of being baptized, and, and I get it. It's, it's, it's often fearful to speak in front of people, but oftentimes I think people's fear is more associated with them thinking too much about themselves. If you're fearful of standing up and giving a testimony that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I just want you to consider this. It's possible that you're thinking way too much of yourself instead of the one that you're actually united to. You're making it actually more about you and less about the one who has saved you. I want you to listen again to the language that Paul uses here. He says this in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, listen to this language right here, into Christ Jesus. We're baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Listen to this, verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is identification language. And another theological term is that this is union language. It speaks to our union with Jesus Christ. You say, well, what does is, what is union with Christ actually mean? Here's what it means. Look, very simply, it means this, that you are in Christ and that Christ is in you. You're meshed together. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. The picture here is this, that listen, Christ represents you. What happened to Christ through faith in him also then happened to you. The benefits that Christ receives, if you are in Christ, you therefore are the recipient of those same benefits. Galatians 2.20 says it like this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You say, well, what exactly does this union of Christ mean for me? And I want you to see this. This is what your identification with Christ points you to. This is just four simple things that have to do with our union with Christ, our identification with Christ. Here it is. First, you have a new identity. You have a new identity. 
Verse 3 makes that very clear. You have been baptized into Christ Jesus. And here's what that means for you. Listen, your life is not defined by what you have done for yourself. It's not defined by who you've made yourself to be. It's not defined by your success or your failures. It's not defined by your accomplishments or your personal reputation. It's defined by who you are in Jesus Christ. If I can say it simply, it's defined by Jesus Christ. I am God's. I am loved. I am free. I am adopted. I am a new creation. It means, secondly, that I have a new destiny. You see, God is recreating us. God designed us initially to be in a relationship with Him and to image Him to the world around us. Sin has broken our ability to rightly reflect God to the world. But in Christ, God is recreating us. He is transforming us from the inside out. He's transforming our affections, our desires, our loves. He is reorienting them all back to where they should have been in the first place, on Him. And as a result of new desires, new passions, our life begins to look different. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, united to Him, identified with him, your destiny is to be made like Jesus and to reflect him to the world. That's why Paul says at the end of four um, that Christ was raised to the dead by the glory of the Father that we too might walk in newness of life. Third, notice this, that my union with Christ means that I have a new purpose. And I want to drop down into the next few verses, verse six, just listen to the, the purpose that we have now In Christ Jesus, we're freed to him, from sin to him, for his glory. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our whole life is different. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You want to know what your next purpose is in glorifying God? Look at verses 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Our new purpose, because of our new identity, is to live for His glory, to no longer walk in sin, but in the newness of life that He provides, to be holy as He is holy, to strive for righteousness because He is righteous. And lastly, our identity in Him, our union with Him, reminds us that we have a new hope. We have a new hope. Colossians 1.27 says it like this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Listen, the, the hope of the gospel is this, that we're not alone. We have been saved and set free, but God has not left us alone. He has given us His Holy Spirit, and one day we will enter in the fullness of His presence and enjoy Him like we'd never have before for all of eternity. There is a new hope for us in Jesus Christ. 
And union with Christ by faith points us to this reality. The point Paul is making is that being a Christian involves a personal, vital, public identification with Jesus Christ and that this union with him is dramatically portrayed in the act of baptism. Lastly here, baptism is a powerful gospel initiation. And I want you to see here uh, the amount of times that Paul speaks not just to an individual, but to a group. Did you notice the language he uses? Do you not know that all of us who, are, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him, you see, you have to put this in context. Paul is speaking to a church. He's speaking to a group. He's speaking to a community of faith. And that reminds us of what baptism is intended to demonstrate Every believer upon their conversion undergoes a spiritual baptism. And that helps us understand why physical baptism is required for every believer. Ultimately, we have all been baptized by Jesus. He baptizes us into a one body by one spirit. This baptism designates the boundary between the new life and the old life, but it also designates the boundary between the church and the world. God is saying it's an initiatory rite. It tells people that you have been saved by the grace of God, but it also tells people what you have joined and become a part of the family of God. I think this is important because so often we look at baptism as something that's merely personal. And we overemphasize the personal at the expense, most of the time, of the communal. You see, the physical baptism isn't just a sign of personal conversion. It's a sign of corporate inclusion. It is the initial entrance, yes, into a relationship with God, but it is also an initial entrance into the church of Jesus Christ. You have been brought into the family of God. That's what baptism is saying. You have been brought into the body of Christ. You've been brought into the church of the living God. He's called you into this family where he wants you to grow, where he wants to use you, and he wants to bless you. Baptism, in other words, really is like putting on the team jersey. You're like, I'm on team Jesus. I'm part of the team. It's a team sport. Why does this matter so much? Because a Christian who is baptized is essentially saying, I am committed to Jesus Christ, and I am committed to his bride, the church. That those who make a credible profession of faith, who have surrendered their life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, who have been baptized in the Spirit, they must be baptized by water to make it clear and visible to the world, but also to the church. People who are baptized are saying to us, the family of God, I am a follower of Christ. I'm with you. I have been mercifully saved by grace through faith just like you. I'm a part of the church. I am committed. I am accountable. I will contribute to the growth and health of the body so that the gospel might be powerfully displayed and made visible through us. Here's what that means for you and for me. If you've been baptized, you're like, well, this doesn't really apply to me this morning. I've already been baptized. Yes, it does. It means that the church plays an active role in the life of those who are being baptized. It means that we're recognizing the profession of faith that they're making. 
It means that we are celebrating the new life that they have in Jesus Christ, and it means that we are committing as a family to love and to help and disciple those who God has graciously brought into his family. Now, the awesome news this morning is that we actually get to do that together. So I want to invite up uh, Miranda Morris, who is going to give a testimony to her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come on up, Miranda. Well, come on in. Uh, we do, by the way, uh, that's, that was a weak clap. Um, after the testimony and the baptism, I encourage you to uh, multiply that by about 10. Okay? Hello, my name is Miranda Morris, and I am 19 years old. I've had the privilege of growing up in a Christian household. I was raised going to church every week, and I attended private Christian elementary schools. For that reason, I find it difficult to pinpoint the exact time in my life when I was saved, but I know that I have been. Throughout my life, there have been times that I have been closer and more diligent in my walk with God, and there have been times that I have slipped and become more distant from Him. Because of that, I have never felt truly ready to be baptized. I saw many of my friends take that step, but I felt like God would give me some sort of big sign when I was supposed to be baptized. When I was 12 years old, I was diagnosed with cancer. I spent a very rough year in and out of the hospital for my treatments. It was a very difficult time for me and my family, but by the grace of God, I have remained cancer-free now for six years. A lot of people who know that I am both a Christian and a childhood cancer survivor cannot reconcile those two facts with one another. Some people seem to think that God should have either prevented my sickness or answered my prayers by radically like zapping the cancer away. I do believe God can work through drastic miracles such as that, but I also believe that's not how he always works. I believe that he worked through my doctors, nurses, and researchers to provide me with the treatment that I needed in order to be healed. I also believe he worked through the church we attended as well as my school community to provide support for my family in that difficult season. And he worked through me to show others around me that he does protect his children through everything. When it came to being baptized, I found myself acting kind of like those people who only believe in a zappy God. I was waiting for some radical sign to tell me that I should be baptized, but as I said, I don't think God always works that way. I know what I believe and I want to profess my faith and dedicate my life to following Christ, which is what finally brought me here today. I believe that God is my creator and that it is my calling to follow him and serve him in my earthly life. I know that I am, as all humans are, a sinner who cannot possibly earn God's favor on my own. But I also believe that God loves me and that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die a sinner's death on the cross as a substitute for my sins. Because of this, I am freed from sin and can have a relationship with God. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, and that one day we too will be raised up into the presence of our Father, where we can etern- live eternally with him because of Jesus' sacrifice. By being baptized today, I want to publicly declare that I am dedicating my life to serving the Lord in everything that I do. Miranda, it is because of your clear testimony and your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his clear evidence of grace at work in your life that I now baptize you in the name of the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's just take a minute and let's pray for Miranda. Father God in heaven, thank you so much for this testimony. Thank you so much for the evidence of your grace in Miranda's life. We pray for her now. God, blessed to hear how you have worked so powerfully in her life, how you have worked through the circumstances of her life, and how she longs, Lord, to make it clear that she is a follower of Jesus Christ. God, would you take Miranda and use her for the glory and honor of your great name? Would you grow her and mature her and bless her as she strives to live for you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you thought the service was over, but it's a two-for-one special today. So, um, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. And we're going to hit the second ordinance that God has given to the church, and it naturally follows the first. God has designed it this way, and so I want to look now at the Lord's Supper And uh, while baptism is initial entrance, you can look at the Lord's Supper as an ongoing maintenance. Um, It's the means by which God is maintaining the Christian life in the Christian community. And by maintenance, I don't mean uh, simply keeping it um, flat or neutral, but maintenance in the sense uh, that priming it, advancing it, maturing it. Think of baptism as symbolizing your new birth, your new life. That's exactly what it is. The Lord's table, the Lord's supper, is symbolizing the ongoing means of growth and development in the Christian life and in the community of faith. It answers this question, how do I, as a professing follower of Jesus Christ who has been baptized, how do I maintain a healthy, thriving walk and relationship with the Lord and with his people. And the first thing that we see as Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 11 is that it's a covenant meal. Covenant helps us understand its significance. And in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, I want to just simply begin at verse 18 as he has an entire section here. I'll read a, a portion of it here. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, notice again who's being addressed here, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I want you just to notice here in this first section the language that is used. Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth and he refers to something that is identified as the Lord's Supper. He identifies it as a kind of meal. And what we see right here is that Paul is addressing the church and he's correcting them. You see, they've been abusing the meal. In fact, what they've done is they've turned it into something other than what it was intended to be. It is no longer the Lord's Supper. It's just some kind of a pagan meal where they're getting together for the sake of the food and the fun. And people are being abused in the process. People are being excluded. They're not being welcomed in. People are showing up early, getting the best portions. They're eating all the bread, drinking all the juice. Wine. 
Say, are you sure it was wine? I don't know. When was the last time you got drunk on grape juice? People are treating it cavalierly, trivially. So Paul looks at them and he says, now I want to address the problem here. I want to set you straight. I want to heighten the seriousness of what's going on. Look at what it says in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. He goes right to quoting Jesus. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Here, he speaks about the Lord's Supper from the perspective of Jesus. Now, it's important to remember that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper to replace the Passover meal. That's what he's alluding here to. Jesus, on that, the night that he was betrayed, was a Passover night. It was a Passover meal. You say, well, what was a Passover meal? It was required of the people of God to celebrate the Passover event when Jesus had liberated and delivered his people from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And you remember the story that God was going to kill the firstborn of everybody in Egypt and to spare of the judgment for the firstborn of the nation of Israel, he had them kill a perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb. They would take the blood of that lamb, paint it on their doorpost, a reminder that something had to die, and they must be covered by that death so that they might be saved. And then they were required to, to cook and to eat that lamb. A reminder of God's gracious provision for them. And Jesus, on that Passover night, he took the bread and he took the cup and he told them that now, is, in essence, the Passover had been fulfilled. The old covenant, the old way of accessing God had been finally fulfilled. Everything that that Passover and all the Old Testament was pointed to was taking place in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that, now there was something new to celebrate because there was a new covenant a new way to access God through the fulfillment of the old way. That way was through Jesus who established the new covenant by his blood. So this meal was intended to be this ongoing symbol and picture of this new covenant. It's a picture mainly of his death. The bread, as he breaks it, he tells his disciples, look, this is, this is going to point towards what you're about to witness. Very soon, my body would be broken for you. Because of sin, I will be broken as a substitute in your place. 
the cup and the wine inside of it depicts the blood of Jesus that would be shed for the forgiveness of sins so that new life could be granted, one life given so that new life could be experienced. This picture of the blood that cleanses us, that heals us and restores us, that saves us. By the way, this tells us who gets to participate in the Lord's table. Who is this for? It is for those who have been covered by the blood of Jesus, those who have been saved and redeemed and spared the judgment of God. This is for and only for followers of Jesus Christ. This is for those who have been born again, who have been regenerated by the Spirit, followers of Jesus by grace through faith, those who have made the visible expression of their faith by being baptized. You say, so if I'm not a believer, should I take this? No. No. We still love you. But this is not for you. You say, well, what if I haven't been baptized? No, you shouldn't take this. This is a really important point because some of you in here haven't been baptized, but you've been taking the Lord's Supper and you actually have to understand that you've put the cart before the horse. You have failed in the first act of obedience and you're continuing then to live in disobedience. God has said the first step of obedience is not to take the Lord's Supper, it's to publicly profess your faith through the waters of baptism. By the way, this helps us understand if children should be taking the Lord's Supper, The answer is this, if they have not been baptized as a believer, no. Parents, this is really helpful for you. This is a way you instruct your children. You need to let them know that this is for those who have clearly identified themselves with Jesus Christ through baptism. And now, this is the ongoing means of demonstrating that they are in good standing and fellowship with the God who created them. What if I have confessed him as Lord, though, and I still haven't been baptized? Awesome. Make it clear by being baptized. Get in the waters of baptism. Declare your allegiance to Jesus and your identification with him. You say, well, I can't do that. Then let me just say this as clearly as possible. Then you can't take the Lord's table. You say, well, are you going to force me? No. No. But can I, just, can I just tell you, can I warn you? You eat and drink judgment upon yourself if you disobey God in this. God, God will police that, and I just I want to protect you. I want to help you. I want to steer you towards blessing from the Lord, not discipline and chastisement from the Lord. This is for those who have done what Jesus has asked them to do, visibly identify as Christ followers and members of his church. And so now they can be visibly identified. Listen, what happens here happens in this context so that we can visibly identify as healthy followers of Jesus Christ. We are testifying, not just, this isn't just personal again, okay? We're testifying to others. I am walking faithfully with the Lord in this family of followers of Christ. I am dealing with my life and I am striving towards him. I am a healthy member, sinning, yes, But repenting, yes, turning from sin by the grace of God. You see, this is a new covenant meal that reminds us of the new covenant that's been established by the blood of Jesus, by his body that was broken for us. Secondly, it's a communion meal. In fact, we often use the word communion when we talk about the Lord's Supper. It's a synonymous term. 
But don't miss the significance of the term. It's likely that you may have missed the point of why we call it communion in the first place. It's because that's what this is intended to be. It's intended to be a symbol of how we have communion with God and how we enjoy ongoing communion with God. It's a reminder that our relationship is not simply one of tradition and ceremony, it's one of deep, intimate relationship. That God is looking to engage with our hearts. The gospel that we celebrate, the elements picture for us this gospel, and it reminds us, listen, that there is no hope for you and I to have communion, to have relationship and fellowship with the God who created us apart from the work of the cross, amen? Every time you come to the Lord's table, here's one thing that should go through your mind. I would not, listen, I would not enjoy a relationship with God apart from what he did for me at Calvary. And as such, it calls us to reflect upon our life. You'll notice the language that he used here to examine ourselves. Why? You say, why? Because we know that sin hinders our ongoing communion with God. It destroys our relationship with him, and our fellowship can only flourish when sin is repeatedly brought to the foot of the cross. That's why we have these moments of silence. We want to honor the word of God. We come to the communion table, and we say, God, I want to make sure that there's nothing in my life that is hindering a, a sweet, intimate relationship with you, and I want to get all my sin, Lord, out on the table. And So I would even be encouraging you now, knowing that we're going to celebrate this in a minute. God, God, what is in my life that I know about that I need to confess and forsake this morning? God, what sin am I not aware of that needs to be dealt with before you that I need to bring to the foot of the cross once more today? The bread and wine are elements of this meal, but I want you just to consider how significant that is. It's called a supper, by the way, and a meal for a reason. Think about this. What is bread and wine intended to do for us? In the ancient world, those were two of the primary forms of physical sustenance. They were what nourished and strengthened the body. And so what Jesus is actually telling us as we hold these elements in our hands, we're reminded every time, listen, I want to be the one that nourishes and provides everything for you. So we examine our lives and we get rid of the sin. We say, look, I, Lord, I agree with you. Sin cannot sustain me. Sin is killing me from the inside out. And God, I need you and only you, repeatedly you, to sustain me, to nourish me, to feed me. As he says in the Gospel of John, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And so we feast on him and what he provides and we meet with him. This is symbolic, but you need to understand this is supernatural where God is reminding us in these moments, he is among us. He loves us. He provides everything for us. We are nourished when we come repeatedly to him. And so we reflect and we repent we don't come in an unworthy manner, harboring willful sin, in relational friction and division. We deal with those things biblically. We deal with them to honor God and the unity that he has given to us. And we come repenting of our sin, trusting that God is abundant in his grace. You know what we're saying when we come to the Lord's table? We're saying, Jesus, sin cannot satisfy me, only you can. Christ, you are enough for me. 
So we come back to the gospel time and time again, and we deal with our sin, and we rejoice in his amazing grace. And I want you to see, lastly, that we do this together because the Lord's Supper is a community meal. We are remembering what Christ has done for us. Did you notice again? I tried to emphasize this when we read it um, in verse 18. When you come together, the, the Lord's table, celebrating communion, is not an individual act. It is a corporate act. It is done in the context of the local gathering, the church of Jesus Christ. This is the place where we celebrate the Lord's table, and it's very important that we understand why that is. Because it's a perpetual reminder that we are a community of faith saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are family. We are united by one spirit into one body. God has brought us together, and he's done so to display the power of the gospel among us. And as we do this together, we get to look around and see the beauty of the church. We get to see people who have different testimonies and different stories from different walks of life and different backgrounds, but we all celebrate the same unifying reality, Jesus Christ, Him crucified. We see the unity, the diversity, and we see how we are all called to contribute to the maturity. We see who's in the family, and we are remembering what our responsibility is to the family. It is a normal, regular, ongoing part of fellowship. And while it points us back to the cross and what, was established, what established the new community, it also points us forward to the future day where we will celebrate the community of God from all ages that will gather together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We celebrate now that God dwells among us, his children, his church. But we're reminded when we take this that there is a day coming where we will dwell with our God in the fullness of his glory and his presence. You see, this is a celebration meal of what God has done and what God is doing and what he will do. It is a meal that is filled with life and filled with hope. And both baptism and the Lord's table remind the church that we are a visible people chosen by God to know and to love Him. Baptism, that visible expression of initial entrance. The Lord's table, that visible expression of the ongoing maintenance and health and growth of the church. A visible people so that we can make our God visible to the world. You say, well, what if I'm not a part of the church? What if I'm an unbeliever? Listen, if you walked in here today and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're exploring the faith, if you were invited by somebody, if you're questioning things or curious about this, here's what you need to know. This is also in one sense for you. Both baptism and the Lord's table are not for you to participate in, but they stand before you as a standing invitation from God. You need to hear today that what you're witnessing among us is God looking at you and saying, listen, listen, you can have this too. You can be brought from death to life. You can have purpose and meaning and identity that's found in me. You can be rescued from the dominion and power of sin. You can be set free to newness of life in Christ Jesus. And you can be a part of the body of Christ where we celebrate the gospel and live for the glory and honor and fame of the name of Jesus Christ. And you can be guaranteed a future hope that one day, listen, you will enter into his glorious presence for all eternity. It is a standing invitation to you. So hear the call of God. Come. Come and eat.
come and drink. Come and be satisfied in me. Come and join my family. Come and follow Jesus. Jesus.